welcome to Triple A Sky. Today, Irene and I are discussing stargazing in New York City with John Bills, the chairman of the AAA. I'm Stanley Furtick. And I'm Irene Pease. AAA Sky is produced by the Amateur Astronomers Association of New York, whose mission is to promote the study of astronomy and to emphasize its cultural and inspirational value. You can find out more about AAA at aaa.org. First, here's a word from our president, Brian Berg. Hello, and welcome to the newest episode of AAA Sky, the official podcast of the Amateur Astronomers Association of New York. And I am Brian Berg, the president of AAA. Thank you, as always, for listening to our podcasts. We are, as I've expressed previously, so excited to be able to bring this and all the wonderful things that we do at AAA to all of you in the astronomical community worldwide. In this episode, none other than John Bills, the chairperson of AAA, is being interviewed. John will be talking about how to get started with visual observing. He'll talk about how binoculars make a great first telescope. He'll talk about our library program, the classes that we offer, Starfest, and all of the other great things that we here at AAA try to bring to all of you. And again, we couldn't do any of this without all of your support. So thank you, sincerely. Please remember to forward any comments, questions, suggestions, and of course, accolades our way. And with that said, Stan and Irene, take it away. John Bills is our very own chairman of the board of the Amateur Astronomers Association. A nuclear engineer by training, he originally joined the Navy with the intent of becoming a naval aviator and eventually an astronaut. Instead, he found himself under the sea for four years as a submarine officer leading a crew of a hundred. Nevertheless, his love of the sky would not be denied, and he purchased several telescopes and joined the AAA several years ago, eventually joining our board. This past year, John was elected chairman of the AAA, enabling him to bring his vision to bear to the benefit of the club. By day, John is an investment banker and managing director at Cantor Fitzgerald. At night, John is an avid astrophotographer and very active in the AAA's astrophotography group. John is a chartered financial analyst and holds an MBA from Harvard Business School. He and his family live in Manhattan. Irene and I spoke to John for our first post-COVID live and impromptu in-person interview at an undisclosed location in Brooklyn. I want to ask all of our listeners to kindly forgive the poor sound quality of our voices. It's not up to our usual standards, as we didn't have the proper recording equipment at the time of the interview. But I think the content and the spirit of the conversation comes across very well. So fasten your seatbelts or strap on your headphones and enjoy. So, hello, Irene. Hello, John. Hello, Stanley. Thanks for, thanks for hosting us here, and uh, thanks for bringing the wine. <laughs> uh, so, the topic today is stargazing in New York, its challenges and rewards. John, you're an avid astrophotographer as well as an observer. You've always dealt with the challenges and the difficulty of finding and seeing things in the middle of New York City. How do you know about that? 
It's a great, great question, Stanley, and one that uh, I think confounds a lot of people. But when you when you start to crack the code on it, it's it's, it's pretty great and rewarding. And so, you know, for me, I started out as an observer and finding things the old-fashioned way with your eyes or with a pair of binoculars using the kind of marker stars and constellations. You know, really, it was it was AAA that got me really reengaged in that, and I spent a lot of time with the observer group initially within AAA, including nights out in different places with Irene and, and others, working on a lot of Messier objects. Yeah, I, th- I think one of my the first times I met you was when you picked me and a telescope up and we were driving up for one of the practice Messier marathons that you were organizing. And it was, exactly. it was a great introduction to John Bells. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I met John in a bar. <laughs> there, there is a, there is a better chance of that than probably uh, me picking you up with a for the telescope. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, that was a great a great time. A uh, very cold night, but uh, one that was pretty memorable. And uh, yeah, so I was using a much smaller telescope than Irene was, who had a massive dot that's very cool and looks really cool. I had a well, forgive me for cutting you off there, but I think most of us have smaller telescopes than Irene does. Yeah, but it was a big telescope. <laughs> yes, little telescope envy here. It's true. But it's a big light bar. Irene has, quote, Brooklyn's prettiest telescope. Yeah, just just a name, not a not a scientific fact or anything. Just a name. Yeah. Sorry, I interrupted you. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. And so, um, yeah, I it, the AAA really helped kick kick my my love for finding uh, objects in the sky, and in particular, finding fainter objects like galaxies and nebulae. And uh, in New York City, I, I didn't even really know it was possible. But uh, as I spent time with club members and, and, and did more work, uh, it became it became a really, you know, a bit of an obsession almost in trying to now see if I could get all the Messier objects from New York City. And I uh, didn't quite ever accomplish that with my naked eye. But I but I did also end up spending time in the AAA with the astrophotography group. Uh, so I took a class from Stan Honda. And, uh, and that led me to start taking more pictures of the sky. And as I did that, I ended up talking with a group that did a lot more electronically assisted astronomy uh, and also did astrophotography of deep sky objects, which then ended up opening a whole other avenue of ways in which you can experience the sky in New York City. And instead of maybe experiencing them in a more direct but maybe kind of faint way, you could actually really bring out a galaxy in, in, in a very short period of time and, and have a bit of wow factor. So, yeah, there's a lot of different ways to experience this guy in New York City. Okay, well, that, let's unpack that. You said a lot. So when you say electronically assisted astronomy, can you tell us what you mean by that? Yeah, great, great question. And it means a lot of things depending upon what you do. But at, at, its, at its core... We now have so much great technology available to us um, in the form of sensors that can can detect the photons uh, in terms of software that can help us process that and find objects as well as as well as um, process that signal to noise and give us a, a great image that you, you package that together with some type of a, a lens or a telescope. And now you have a way of enjoying experiencing the galaxy that is really would have been unheard of even just 10 years ago. And in, and in some cases in very small packages in other cases, as large as you want to put together in some cases, all put together for you by a company and you press a button. In other cases, you pack, you put it all together by yourself and experience it the way you want to. So electronically assisted is just a way in which the electronics that we have today can allow us to experience these um, various objects in the sky. Yeah, I guess the extreme case of that 
would be Stellina, which is an, a telescope where there is no eyepiece and there's no provision for putting an eyepiece on it. It only works with a tablet or a phone. There's a sensor in the, tele, in the telescope and it knows what it's looking at and it shows you whatever it's pointing at on the screen of your other device where you can save it as a photo of yours. And I was thinking you were saying like a wide range, so like the wide range all the way up to um, what Stanley was just talking about versus I'm wondering how small you can get. Like I've, I've used some kind of souped up binoculars that have like just stabilizers, which can go a long way as far as binoculars are concerned. I don't know if that's considered <laughs> electronic assisted, yeah, but have you seen like, like image that. enhancing on binoculars? Is it mostly like monoculars, like telescopes and, and I mean, I would I would argue that image stabilization is absolutely one way. I hadn't thought about it until you just said it, but when I actually have a pair of image stabilized binoculars, and I love to view Jupiter's moons, period. But through an image stabilized set of binoculars, it's it's so crisp, it's so clear, and it's so stable compared to uh, alternatively, you know, doing it with um, handhelds. So it's absolutely, and it makes for an easier way having. Having searched for a lot of Messier objects with both regular binoculars and image stabilized, the the level of um, enjoyment is much higher with image stabilized. I do just have to get a quick clarification because you mentioned like Messier objects earlier doing like the full Messier, which I know you shared a whole bunch of your pictures, like the collections, which was amazing. I always love getting those emails uh, from you and the other astrophotographers. So you, but you mentioned like naked eye, you mean like without electronic assistance versus like without binoculars or telescope or any other assistance, just your eyeball. Correct, just your eyeball, right? So I like to, when I do a Messier marathon, I'm not going to get 110 of them with my naked eyeball. Um, that, that one's too, too hard, but I like to record which ones I see with the naked eye to the extent I have binoculars and I'm using them with the telescope. I like to record those sightings down. And in fact, you know, those are fun too. Uh, in dark sky sites, I, I've captured with the binoculars as many as I believe uh, 89 of the objects just with binoculars. And uh, and, and some of them are, are more powerful and fun to watch in binoculars than frankly with the telescope. And how much without any gear in a dark sky? I, I'd have to go back and look at what I did in Phoenix. But there's like a you. handful that are, that are mag six or Correct. brighter, right? Yeah, so I, in Arizona, I'm pretty sure I was able to see M33, which is a, which is a naked eye galaxy. But even in pretty dark skies of the Adirondacks, I, I've not been able to see that. But in Phoenix, I believe, I, you know, 90 miles west of Phoenix, I was able to spot I mean, from here in Brooklyn, obviously you can see the Pleiades. You can see Andromeda on a really good night from Brooklyn Heights if oh, you're really? very lucky. Okay. But I think I'm concluding that you have much better eyesight than I do. Because with, <laughs> for me, this, the list is a small number of single digits of things that I can see with just my eyes. Yeah, I get pretty excited if I can see a lot of galaxies with my telescope from New York City. So I'll, I'll have to, I, I have started tracking a little bit, like which, which messy objects have I seen and which have I seen from New York City with a telescope. But I haven't really hunted down too many naked eye, I have to admit. No, I, I, I've, um, you know, for me, it's, it's binoculars that you can, you know, knock down Andromeda with that in New York City. But it's, it's pretty challenging to see anything with your naked eye other than uh, M42 and M43. But, but you're, you're seeing the faint trails of them as opposed to as opposed to that. So you're really relegated to, to cluster, uh, you know, like open clusters that you can see like the Pleiades. Yes, to be fair, um, when 
God, it must be something like 20 years ago when we had a blackout oh, in New York City. Yeah. And therefore the sky was really good. <laughs> and I remember I, I could see, uh, yeah, I could see M42, the Great Orion Nebula with just my naked eye. I was looking at it and I said, oh, that's unusual. That, yeah, I, I need to be ready, though, for the next blackout, to your point. I hope it doesn't happen, of course. But uh, but if it does, I, I, I need to be ready to, to hop out and get the Naked Eye Messier going. Yeah, uh, silver uh, lining. And make sure you don't get locked out of your house, because I think one of the last blackouts, one of our one of our members accidentally locked himself out of the house. He was so excited to run outside with his telescope oh, and share with his oh neighbors, yes. not naming names. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> there are also many reports when that happened of of, uh, of potential aliens that were, and it was basically the, the Milky Way was mistaken as potentially some kind of an alien force. Because people don't know. So so that's one of the things that AAA does, right? So I know you've been involved with like some of the outreach projects I mentioned, like you co-organized or mainly organized one of our Messier marathons and the practices. Um, what other kinds of opportunities does AAA have? I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about that um, for the public to to enjoy the night yeah, skies and the day skies. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great point. That's a great point, Irene. Great, great segue to, to what we do, which is, which is very numerous. But I would say one key thing that we do is, you know, we, we offer to the public, uh, various events throughout New York City where, where our members, uh, bring their telescopes. In some cases, they bring their, their electronically assisted gear as well. So you can see things on the screen and whether that's in the High Line or whether that's in Lincoln Center or whether that's in a Starfest in Central Park, we allow, you know, walkers by, passers by in New York City that see a telescope to, to, to either look in that telescope or look on their screen or, or really experience typically planets, the moon, uh, Saturn and Jupiter are always big hits, uh, as I, I know you've talked about on, on the podcast previously. The wow factor for seeing the rings of Saturn is is really beyond compare, frankly, for most people. Saturn never fails. It's perfectly reliable. If you want to get a wow out of somebody, <laughs> show them Saturn. Yeah, sometimes they get confused and they look for a sticker at the other end, like, nope, no sticker. That's really Saturn. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and at Starfest last time, when when whenever that was pre-pandemic, but the last autumn Starfest, we had a whole section that was EAA. So, you know, we had Mari out there with his tablet and pulling in, you know, objects that really would have been, uh, you know, nigh impossible to see with just binoculars or a telescope. Um, and, uh, and, and it, it gets a lot of wow factor. And, and we've talked about in the past, like, especially with the younger generation, that are that are used to screens. That's how they experience a lot of their life right now, and so it's very natural for them to to, to enjoy and experience these deep sky objects through through the through the screens of either theirs or someone else, depending upon what your technology is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in addition to the public observing events, the special events like Starfest that you mentioned, we've been talking about. Um, we'll have a link for our calendar so people can check out um, what's coming up. Um, we also have some other things like we have like a group and we have classes. And have you taken any of the classes involving uh, imaging? Yeah, so that's a, it's a, absolutely. And those are phenomenal. And, and so I've taken them. We have two great leaders there, Maury Rosenthal and Alfredo Villegas. And they are great classes to allow you to go from 
zero to like 100 miles per hour. Um, <laughs> that doesn't yeah. sound safe. You need a seatbelt for that? <laughs> yeah, actually, yes. You, you probably to protect your like bank account and credit card accounts, you should because you can always, you don't have to pay a lot of money to enjoy the universe. You can actually do it on a, on a, on a great budget, but, but if you want to enjoy it, uh, you can also spend a lot of money. And, but, but importantly, they, they give you the roadmap on how to go and, and really choose how you want to experience it. And with today's technology, it doesn't have to be extremely expensive. And you can pull down a lot of objects in New York City. When I have done the Messier Marathon from New York City, you know, you can experience these objects very quickly if you want to, or you can spend a lot of time on them and really pull in the details from from the most from the faint fainter ones to, to, to the to the ones that are really pretty bright. You're not talking about photography, you're just talking about Oh, yes. Take a quick view and then you move on. Yeah, and in my case, they, they're they're being recorded. I'm recording the images, so I recorded anywhere from twenty or thirty seconds per object to as maybe as many as like five minutes, and you know was able to pull down almost all of them in in, in one night. Um, yeah, that is amazing. From my rooftop. In from your rooftop. Yeah, that's that's pretty fast to find stuff. Yeah, Midtown Manhattan, Upper East Side, uh, lots of light pollution. Uh, so missed missed a couple of the a few of the uh, the rising globular clusters. Um, they were a little too low, and there's a bit of light pollution. But it was a really wonderful night on the rooftop by myself, just just experiencing all the different objects and uh, and seeing them on the screen. In this case, I did it with um, with electronically assisted um, uh, tools that that basically put it right on my right on my um, iPhone. I saw them on my iPhone come up as they as the as the noise ratio diminished and signal signal jumped out and within you know in many cases 20 30 seconds I had a pretty good image of what was there and got to got to experience it while looking at the sky and enjoying that as well. So does this mean that the technology we have now officially conquered light pollution? I think we've taken a good chunk out of it. I I I, I don't want to say we've conquered it, but but we certainly found a way to punch through it in a pretty good way um, that um, that allows people in New York City, like no other time in history, except for when it was dark and we didn't have all this light pollution, of course. Except before it was bright. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, uh, very good point. Uh, to, to actually, if they want to, you know, pull in their own images and, and pull in their own data on these wonderful galaxies and nebulae. So there, for all the, all the Philistines who say that you can't see any deep sky objects from New York, ha, we now know you can. <laughs> Cheers to that. So I guess um, one other question that's related to that, which I think is worth our chatting about, is um, this kind of reminds me of a conversation that was debated at Infinitum years ago, which was about... If somebody is starting out, stargazing, let's say, or they, they, they're ready to move beyond binoculars, should they buy a telescope that has, that's a go-to telescope? Or should they um, try, first try to learn the night sky, where some basic things are in the sky? And I've heard both sides of that argued fairly strenuously. Um, how do each of you feel about that? Irene, ladies first. <laughs> Um, all right. So first of all, if you started with binoculars, which I think everyone should, that's a great first telescope. It's portable. It's less expensive. And it does help you get to know the night sky. So beyond that, like as you as you bud with your binoculars, 
um, you also get more of a sense for what else you might be interested in doing astronomy wise. So I'm the old school thought, I guess. <laughs> I'm all about learning this guy. And so that's, that's one reason I recommend binoculars for a first telescope. Um, I think beyond that, a first telescope, one of the most important things is that it's very easy to move to wherever you're going to set it up and it needs to be very easy to set up. Otherwise you're not gonna, you're just gonna get frustrated and you're not gonna deal with it. So for most of my life, that's meant like something very simple, non-electronic like a dob. I heart my dob, she is pretty, she's Brooklyn's prettiest telescope, but she's also actually kind of pretty. Um, and I can set it up easy peasy, super fast, and it has like a little finder on it, I use a Telrad, and with that, I can hunt down like whatever I wanna look at in sky, even if it's something that I don't know, if I can see it with my naked eye, or if I can see about where it is with binoculars, then I can shove my telescope there um, and, and see it that way. So again, but that's, that's for me, like, cause I think like, I want to know the night sky and I like knowing where these things are. And for me, part of the thrill, it's, it's, it's the hunt, you know, I, I like to, I like to hunt it down and find it be like, yeah, I found one. And then, you know, look at it a little bit, make some notes, move on to the next. So that's for me. No, I, I absolutely agree on the, I mean, the star hopping and hunting down an object is like, there's a reason I love doing these things and stay, I can stay up, you know, all night long doing it. Cause it's actually, I think we're kind of programmed to, to be able to find things and figure out what they are. And there's a, there's like a bit of a habit and a reward that happens there. So it becomes this very, you know, awesome, rewarding experience. Right. And so I agree. It's, it's <laughs> Indeed it Super does. Super old school. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no. And, 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 and Irene is obviously coming at it more from a purist perspective. That's, that's how I started, I would say, as well, is is learning the sky visually and, and finding things the old-fashioned way of star hopping, and, 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 and I like that. But I think for many people today, and this is another service that AAA offers, you know, there are tools that make it easy to still have something help you, in this case, your phone that you can attach to a telescope. And it will basically guide you to these objects because the, the, the phone that you have can plate solve with its camera. There's a plate solver app that basically knows exactly where it is in the sky and it directs you to what you're trying to find. And so AAA provides access to this through the public libraries of York. So the library program will use what's called a Celestron StarSense Explorer. We have we have a number of them that we we purchase and you insert your phone right next to a little holder in the telescope. Uh, it gives you a menu of what you want to see on the night sky. You press that button and it has a little arrow that points you to where to go. And when that arrow turns green, you're there. So that is a good tip. It's, a, it's the easiest to use, which is a great point that Irene brought up earlier about the, the best telescope is the one that you'll use. Yeah, yes. of course. And for that, I will yield to electronic assisted as far as finding because it is so easy to use. Like when people are trying to do two star alignment, three star alignment, they're like North Star. I can't see it from the city. And it's just and that's a mess. But if it's, if it's very straightforward like this, like with the plate solving. Yes, I say that sounds very easy to use and people will use it and they will they will do what they want to do and, and enjoy the skies. And that's the goal, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and, and or, or the Stellina, right? I think I've, I've seen that used in practice and it worked really well. And I think today's generation, I don't know that they that they differentiate dramatically from seeing it with your eyes versus seeing it on a screen. I think there's 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 clearly a difference. Yeah. But um but it's, it's interesting to see at the events, you know, um, I, I saw pretty good reactions to the Stellina when we were out. Yeah, I mean, I feel that however any person wants to experience the sky is the right way, if that's what they want to do. I mean, the three of us are all highly motivated 
as concerns the sky. So of course we're going to learn the sky, or we learn the sky. Um, but if you want to experience the looking at things in the sky, which are gorgeous, without necessarily putting in all the hard work to learn how to find things in the sky, there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. That's 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 the way you choose to do that. And if, if some people who do that will eventually like it so much that they'll end up learning the sky in spite of themselves. But I don't think there's one best way to do this. It really depends on what you like and how you like to experience things. That's great. And, and you know, what I would just add is that the, the advances that we've seen, I think we're, or maybe we're at an inflection point, maybe we're not, but we, there's more to come right on this. And I think it won't be long. I mean, these packages right now are pretty small that can allow you to, 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 to really experience these things. I think of almost like for people seeing Saturn, that's kind of, can be like the equivalent of a spark bird maybe and, and, and birding that can kind of set them on their path to really dive into astronomy and however they want to do it. And I absolutely agree with what you said, Stanley. I mean, however it is that can motivate you to, to, to enjoy and experience this is, is, is a good thing. And I think today we have so many different tools and, and AAA helps, helps provide you a guide path to those um, as well as a way to experience them out in public in New York City. Yeah, and I think the danger with the old school telescopes that, that maybe didn't have some of this gear is it can be a very frustrating thing, even more so in New York where there are very few stars to mark what you're looking at. And so, um, and, and in some cases, so we pick stuff that, uh, in terms of the gear that we have in the library, we pick things that are going to be refractors, easy to use, you know, pretty straightforward. And so, you know, as people become interested, we want that, we want to make it easy for them to start to really enjoy things. And, and it wasn't, it's not always been the case, even with access to the internet and information much more today, it's easier, but, but we want to make it very simple. Yeah, I think that's a really good point about like the stars in New York City versus the stars elsewhere. I I used to work at a an astronomy bed and breakfast bed and breakfast out in Benson, Arizona, and you know it'd show people the skies and play with the telescopes out there, give them a little tour and everything. And people would come out from uh, from brighter cities or more like you know the suburbs, and they would say, "I know the sky, like I know my sky <laughs> back home." But then I come out here and it's totally different, right? <laughs> and it, it is. It's very different going from like a more light polluted sky to a much darker sky. So really like when I, you know, I'm saying, oh yeah, know the sky, but really it's know your sky. But then that might not be the same if you go to a very, a region with very different light pollution. Yeah. The same for me, like coming here and being like, I don't have enough markers to find things. Then the, the plate solving can be such a boon to, to help with that because I'm like, okay, I know it's in this constellation, but I can, it's a faint constellation. I know it's in this part of the sky, but I can't actually make them out like even in my binoculars. So having plate solving, especially in light polluted areas, I feel like that is definitely an inflection point. Um, cause then you're, it is easy to set up and easy to use and off you go. And it's on your phone, right? So it's, it's like everyone, well, I shouldn't say everyone, but so many people have phones now that, that, that now becomes, you know, a very small lightweight telescope that, that takes minutes to set up. You put your phone in it, you can go wherever it's just to your point. That's a scope that, that will likely get used. Yes. And that's why we chose it. Yeah. <laughs> but I think, you know, even beyond, okay, place something is a wonderful thing. Maybe we should um, explain what that is. Actually. There are a number of applications for iPhones and Android phones where it doesn't necessarily use plate solving, i.e. seeing a patch of the sky and comparing it to a database and recognizing, oh, that's what I'm pointing at. They just use the accelerometer 
on the phone and how you're holding it to be able to show you okay and the compass. And the compass this, is, this is this is what you should be seeing. That's right. Most of the sky, most of the Skyview apps are, are are very much what you just said. So, uh, plate solving is is what you said, where the computer takes the information from the camera in terms of the star configurations and algorithmically solves to what you're looking at. So, yeah, it's uh, those advances have been relatively recent, and uh, and so computing power, sensor sensor sensitivity and strength, and uh, and and Moore's law has been our friend on this. So uh, it's I think only going to get better. And so I'm, I'm willing to yield some of my old school views to plate solving, but I'm still a big fan, again, this is me personally, of actually looking through an eyepiece because one of the most amazing things for me in astronomy is the idea that, you know, this light has been traveling through interstellar, in some cases, intergalactic space for hundreds, thousands, or in the case of galaxies, millions of years, and it bounces around your telescope and hits your eyeball. It's a little bit different than like bouncing around the telescope, hitting, you know, some CCD, you know, and then it produces an image. I'm like, that's my eyeball. The, the, the experience of, of having and thinking about light that, that originated, uh, you know, before the dinosaurs went extinct, right, uh, on this planet, uh, and you're getting a piece of that that traveled in, in this case, yeah, significant intergalactic distances. It's, it's, to have that direct experience to me is very powerful and it, it is very different. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's not powerful to experience it when you're kind of pulling the data in yourself. It's just, I think it's just different. Yeah. I mean, I look, I look at what people do to like create those images. Like I've, I've done like, so Mari, I think has done live streams where he's like showing the image coming through his camera. That's like hooked up to his whole remote, everything that's up on his roof or something. So we see the image and it looks like a blur to me. And then he has like also on his screen that he's screen sharing is like this, what looks to me like is some com complicated computer program. And he's like, Oh, it's really easy. And just do this and just do this. And I'm like, if I could learn to do all of that and to go through all that processing, I'm like, Yes, I feel like that would be very satisfying. Like I've seen people post their like their first image and then they're they're now image two years into doing this and and seeing like the progress. So I feel like just that would be very very satisfying as well. It can be, and I think I think what's nice is that we have like ZWO came up with a package that that puts it on your iPhone or Android or iPad in a way that is very intuitive does not require some of the kind of working with PCs that, 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 that Maury's gear has. And uh, again, can still, can still provide plenty of frustration if you don't hook it up. Right. So I think we'll get better, but it, it becomes much more intuitive than it used to be. Having, having more recently uh, spent time in this space, it's, um, it, it's, it's actually um, just very exciting. What, what you can do in the palm of your hand right now. Yeah, I think um, with respect to place solving, if you're, yeah, you can live without plate solving if you're doing visual observing in any way. But when you get into photography, plate solving becomes really important because you may not be able to, it's not like a single lens reflex camera where you can look through it and see what the camera is looking at. You're kind of remote, even if you're right next to it, you're remote piloting the telescope. And in order to know what your camera is actually seeing, it's really hard to do that without comparing, without plate solving, essentially. So. Yeah, and what's cool today, we didn't talk about, and this is into the weeds, but it's a, the big point is because of today's computing power, you don't have to take six-minute long exposures to be able to, to, to take in the information um, and process it. Today, you can use a very small, lightweight mount and take 
eight second, five second, 10 second exposures. And your computer is going to be the one that puts all that together. And within 30, 40, 50 seconds, you've got an image and it's very recognizable. And so when, so you get, not only it comes up at you quicker, but you actually now don't have to carry this, you know, massive heavy mount. You can actually even have alt as if you want. Now there's, there's issues around it and it's not going to be the same quality in some ways, but, but it allows, you know, to, to have a more usable vehicle and a portable vehicle to go experience things in the urban environment. I'm going to say also, if you have something that's like a really small kit, it takes up a lot less space than your New York City apartment. That's for sure. That is definitely for sure. So not, not a small point. Put this all together. I think it's fair to ask this question in the context of what we've been saying. When we say stargazing, what does that mean today? So many things to so many different people. And that's a wonderful thing. Well, on that note, I'd like to say thank you, John. Thank you, Irene. See you next season. Thank you. This was a pleasure. (laughs) And now, here's Irene's celestial forecast. Thanks, Stanley. July is a fun-packed month for planets. Mercury is at its greatest western elongation on July 4th. You can find it just after 5 a.m., very low on the east-northeast horizon. The next few weeks will still be a good time to see Mercury as it gets brighter in the morning sky. There's a bonus the morning of July 8th when an old crescent moon appears just north of Mercury. In the evening sky, there will be a conjunction of our other terrestrial neighbors, Mars and Venus. It'll be on July 12th and 13th. They'll have just over half a degree of separation as seen from New York City. Venus far outshines Mars at this time, not only being the larger of the two, but currently being a full astronomical unit closer to Earth. July 12th is also the close of Manhattan Henge. If the weather cooperates, New Yorkers can see the sunset exactly along the grid, just kissing the horizon at sunset as viewed along the streets. Please be sure to view this safely. Remember, don't stare at the sun. And also for Manhattan Henge, don't stand in the middle of the streets. Saturn is rising by 10 p.m. in Capricornus. Jupiter and its bright moons are one hour and one constellation behind it, still in Aquarius. Keep watching the gas giants over the summer. Not that they'll do anything more spectacular than last December's conjunction, but they will be a little bit closer, a little bit brighter, and they're always just a treat to see in binoculars or telescopes. The moon will be new on July 9th and then waxing and brightening what little night sky we have this time of year. The morning of July 12th, as the moon rises, it'll be only three degrees north of Venus. Over the course of the day, it will move further east, increasing that separation. So Monday morning will be a good time to look for Venus during the day using a crescent moon as a marker. By noon, the separation is over four degrees, so it'll be better to look in the morning if you can. So just to recap, on July 12th, there's a good Venus sighting opportunity in the morning, there's Manhattan Henge at sunset, and the Mars-Venus conjunction after sunset. There's also a very special birthday that day, my mom, so happy birthday, mom. And for our final feature constellation this season, we have Scutum, the shield. This not-so-big-and-not-so-bright constellation lies along the plane of the Milky Way, sandwiched between the brighter stars of Aquila and the chock-full-of-DSO constellations, Serpents and Sagittarius. From New York City, it's just a blank region of sky north of the teapot of Sagittarius. 
Squidum's brightest star is only magnitude 3.8, but its slice of Milky Way does include a little something for both novice and seasoned observers. The wild duck cluster can be seen with binoculars in a somewhat dark sky, and there are several more star clusters to be found in telescopes with or without EAA, plus a dim blue reflection nebula, IC1287. However you choose to explore the summer Milky Way, please be sure to stop by this small sparkling shield. That's the Celestial Forecast. And now it's time for the AAA Sky Listener Challenge, where we ask you a question about a previous episode, and we award a prize to the winner selected at random from among all the correct answers. So in our last episode for the Listener Challenge, we asked you what type of star is Allison Sheffield's favorite, and how did our listeners do, Stan? Well, there were a few ways to answer this question. The answer we were looking for was simply old stars, but we accepted red giants or even red stars or stellar classification M. So we used random.org to choose a winner from among the various correct answers. And the winner is Alex Kosman. Congratulations, Alex. We'll be contacting you to get your preferred size for your AAA Sky hoodie and your mailing address. So since this is our last episode for this season, we won't have a new listener challenge again until the fall. Yeah, that's right, Irene. But we'd still love to hear from you, our listeners, with your comments and suggestions or even a question. You can email AAA Sky directly at aaasky at aaa.org. That's a different email address from the listener challenge email address. And you can email us anytime. That's AAASky at AAA.org. Yes, please keep those comments coming in. We really enjoy hearing from you. That's our show. We'll be on hiatus until the fall when we return with a whole new slate of episodes. In the meantime, if you're in the New York City area and would like a chance to see some of the celestial targets mentioned in the forecast, AAA will be hosting the following events over the next two weeks. On July 10th and 11th, we have a members-only trip to the Catskill Mountains for dark sky observing. Also on July 10th, Tanabata Festival is being hosted in collaboration with the Japanese American Association of New York. On July 16th, we have a public observing session at the Brooklyn Bridge Park. Also on July 16th, there's more public observing at Carl Schurz Park in Manhattan. Be sure to check our events calendar at aaa.org calendar to get more details about these and other future events. You can even subscribe to it in Google Calendar if you'd like. AAA Sky audio editing and original music is by Preston Staley. Our technical producer is Parker Bossier.